Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, uh, last week in our show, we touched a little bit on, with Chris Alden, this question of Trump and, and what's been going on over the past year. And it's just so interesting because we've had a lot of demand from our, our audience to comment on this, and particularly the S-hole comments that everybody knows, and Apple Podcast does not let us swear or else we get booted off, so we won't say it, but everybody knows the words. And what does that mean in the broader scope of things? And we've been trying to think about this. And again, we touched on this. So if you think you've heard this this dialogue before, uh, give us a little time because we're going to get into it and how it affects China with our guest today. But it was so interesting, Kobus, because as we were thinking about this, you were in the midst of writing an op-ed piece for the Daily Maverick newspaper, Africa's Year of Trump Presents Troubling Questions for the Continent. And, uh, and it's going to be a nice introduction to our discussion about how all of this may or may not be playing into the hands of China. So let's, well, let's start our discussion today about the case that you made in the Daily Maverick about the relationship that Donald Trump is having right now with the United States and what that says about the direction of U.S.-Africa relations. Well, Donald Trump, obviously, his relationship with Africa isn't <laughs> the best at the moment. Um, Africans were very upset by the comments. You know, it was it was interesting the kind of level of pushback it got. Um, you, you know, South Africa, is, I think, you know, tends to take these things on frequently, and they did. Um, but it got really, like, very vigorous pushback from all over the continent, um, which is interesting for me. Um, but the point that I was making was that even be, if you even if you look beyond these comments, I mean, these comments weren't a, a one-time thing. Trump has generally been ignoring Africa, but when he engaged with Africa, it was frequently, you know, through a series of gaffes, you know, so there was the the, the problem with the Nambia comment where he invented a, a, a country or possibly mixed up Namibia and Zambia. Um, there was a whole series of these gaffes in relation, to, in relation to Africa. But the point that I'm making is even if you leave the gaffes off the table completely, the relationship itself seems to be changing. Um, there seem to be trends coming, pointing towards a narrowing of the relationship, um, which I think has some kind of troubling implications for Africa. Well, there are some indications that Trump may have recognized that, or at least Trump's handlers may have recognized that he pushed it too far. And there is reportedly going to be a meeting in the next couple of days in sometime this week or next week at in Davos at the World Economic Forum between Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda, and Trump. And some are reading this as an effort for the U.S. president to mend fences with at least one African leader as a bid to repair some of the damage. One of the other comments that he made was about Nigeria, and he said that once they come to America, they won't want to ever go back to their huts. Uh, and so again, that was seen as, as rather insulting. Now, all of this, and this is the China question, which is why we are talking about it, is relevant because as Trump was making the S-hole comments in Washington, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was on a four-nation tour of Africa. I mean, the timing really just couldn't have been better because there was the Chinese Foreign Minister really serving as a counterbalance to the comments coming out of the United States in the White House. And there's a case that's now being made that all of this behavior from the U.S. president is playing right 
into the Chinese hands and their diplomatic strategy in Africa. And it really just makes the Chinese look stronger as a diplomatic partner. One person who's making that case is Ismail Anashi, who is an independent journalist, a freelance journalist based in London of Somali and British descent. Uh, Ismail, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you for having me. You recently wrote a column uh, in for National Public Radio in the United States, Trump's insults will nudge African nations closer to China. You really lay out the case that all of this really is benefiting the Chinese in Africa at a time when the Chinese appear to be gaining momentum in their diplomatic strategy in Africa, just as the United States may in fact be stumbling. Go ahead and make your case about how the insults uh, are in fact nudging Africans closer to China. Well, I think the insults, uh, as Kerbis rightly pointed out, uh, created a cascade of uh, criticism and anger across Africa, both in terms of leaders of African countries, in terms of the African Union, but also ordinary Africans who took to social media and other platforms to express their outrage. I was actually in West Africa at the time in which uh, Donald Trump was alleged to have made those comments in the White House in, D- in Washington, D.C. And those comments... Um, first created the wave of criticism. But what's been missed and what I try and say in my column for NPR is the broader and deeper strategic shift that's been going on in Africa from west, east, south, north over the last several decades towards China. And what uh, Trump's insults do, I argue in the piece, is slowly but surely nudge African nations even closer to China. And the reason for that is quite simple, I think. Um, what Trump is doing is not only showing uh, disinterest in Africa, as uh, Copas was laying out earlier, but also he is taking positions uh, in terms of his policies, which do nothing to really help um, Africa and the US uh, bring themselves closer. And on top of that, he's insulting entire countries and cultures so flippantly, so disparagingly. And I have to also say at this point, Eric, that I was in Senegal um, a matter of uh, weeks ago, um, and I was in Gori Island, and I was there in the House of Slaves where uh, chained um, uh, Africans were sent on slave ships across the Atlantic to the New World. And that historical um, legacy of slavery and the long history that the United States and Africa have, you would think a United States president would not just be ignorant of history as he is, but would take a cue from that historical legacy of slavery and the subjugation of Africans um, to the New World and to the United United States. And therefore, you would imagine he would, you know, not make such comments, which, to my mind, you know, come from a deeper historical place. So all of this together, I think, do something which helps, you know, the Asian giant, China, because China does not obviously um, have a colonial um, relationship with Africa, even though you might argue today it might have what can be described as that. But these comments that Trump has made, or is alleged to have made, ultimately, I think, and I saw this on the ground in Senegal and other parts of West Africa, push African nations towards China's orbit. Kobus, let me come to you very quickly. And and I want to play devil's advocate here because the point of today's program is not simply to, to be here and to beat up on Donald Trump, that we're really not trying to do that. Um, we want to have a discussion and try to take in all parts. Let me try and channel the Trump worldview and a lot of his supporters in the United States and even probably a lot of non-Trump supporters may think this. And I want to get your point. 
He wasn't elected to take care of Africa. He wasn't elected to, uh, to, to, to help Africa or even to be aware of the history, as Ishmael said. He was elected on an America first platform. And giving billions and billions of dollars in aid is not part of that platform anymore. Each African country, for the most part, is economically insignificant to the United States, just as they are to China. Um, our energy dependence as Americans on Nigeria used to be the fifth largest supplier of oil to the United States has fallen because the United States now is the number one oil producer, energy producer in the world. So really, at the end of the day, if African countries aren't happy with him or the United States, so what? Okay, here's how I can push back against that. Um, he was elected on an American first platform, but he was also elected to be the president of a superpower. Um, the, a, being a superpower means you have carrots and sticks. Um, and at the moment, he is heavily investing in the sticks. He, there's um, there's going to be hikes in, in military spending. Um, and James Mattis, the uh, Secretary of Defense, has indicated that a lot of military attention from the U.S. is going to be focused on Africa. So we're talking about additional uh, surveillance, additional drones, additional anti-terrorism in Africa. And even Donald Trump would, you know, I think would, would see that that kind of anti-terrorism work has some kind of benefit to the US. However, that anti-terrorism work, which is the work of a superpower, you know, has costs in Africa. It, you know, you people, you know, you weddings get blown up. The the wrong people get killed. It's it even if you know anti-terrorism has collateral damage, which is which is highly socially disruptive in Africa. So, if the U.S. wants this kind of okay from African countries, then they can't, with the other hand, at the same time, kind of be dissing them and insulting them and withdrawing all of the all of the kind of diplomatic and public diplomacy and development assistance that comes with the role of being a superpower. America is fine, you know, America is, is, it's fine for America to decide that it doesn't want to be a superpower anymore and to retreat from that role and just focus on itself. That's fine. However, then it has to actually do it. If, you know, it, it can't just have it in the way that it prefers. It, it's, a, it's a big role. It, it has to take all of the different complications to account. Sure. Uh, Ishmael, let me come to you very quickly and talk to you about how you say that it's nudging African nations closer to China. One of the points that Cobus has made over the years in our podcast is the power of American soft power and the effectiveness of it. And this goes from everything from uh, our democratic values that people admire to freedom to the opportunities that come. These are all the ideals of America, but it also extends to Beyonce, Jay-Z, movies, Hollywood, all of that, that so many people today still in Africa admire. At the same time, people do not have that same admiration for China. Chinese soft power is expressed in a very different way. It's through the economy, through building of infrastructure, through uh, the Confucius Institutes that you, had, that you went to in Senegal. So while they may be nudging them towards the Chinese. The relationship between Chinese and Africans will be very different than it is between Americans and Africans. Talk to us a little bit about if, in fact, the nudge is happening as you say it is. What does that look like? Uh, well, I think uh, there is a nudge happening. And as you 
point out, I mean, in recent um, you know decades and years, the main way in which China has engaged with Africa is through trade, largely. Um, you know, the ports, the dams, the roads, the infrastructure projects. You know, taking out minerals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's kind of been the public face of, of China. And actually, over the many years, um, Eric, I've heard many Africans, whether it's in Ethiopia, Somalia, or in West Africa, say to me, you know, the Chinese are different to the Europeans. You know, they don't engage as much on the ground. Um, and actually, you know, that was sometimes to the benefit of China in terms of, you know, getting trade agreements with African nations because they didn't make the same demands um, as Western nations, you know, in terms of um, uh, democracy and other kind of um, Western or liberal values, you might call it. Um, I think what's changing is, um, you know, American soft power remains significant throughout the world, not just in Africa, and I see that everywhere. Uh, but what's changing slowly is that the Chinese are no longer just the labourers, they're no longer just the people who are creating um, trade agreements um, at the state sort of level, the government level, but they're actually beginning to move to the continent. And Howard French, you know, the great Howard French wrote about this, um, you know, there's one million Chinese um, uh, have come to Africa in the last two decades. And I've seen that, you know, in Dakar or in Addis Ababa. I've seen in the last few years, perhaps, a change from mostly men, Chinese men who would come, to now whole families. And I saw this in Dakar when I was there a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, and what you're seeing is, is it's a shift from um, the kind of labourer, kind of, you know, sort of more business aspect to the settlement aspect and with that what's come is place like the Confucius Institute and also Chinese TV and films and I was really struck when I was in the Confucius Institute in Dakar speaking to young Africans many of them were saying you know we like Jet Li um, you know we like Jackie Chan we like the films that come out of China so you know uh, I'm not so sure that the sort of you know American soft power however important it is now in 30 40 years time um, you know might not be having a very healthy competition from China and who knows in 50 years time you know young Africans may be speaking Mandarin uh, and may be watching you know films come out of China as opposed to from Hollywood uh, I don't think you can quite say yet I think what you can say on the ground and just to sort of end it is that I've seen a slow shift of course America remains hugely significant in terms of its cultural output in the, in the continent, and that will remain the case for many years to come. But China is certainly making inroads, and uh, equally as important, Africans are beginning to take an interest, especially young Africans, in what's going on in China. Ishmael, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how both migration and race is playing into into this, because obviously the travel bans um, and the making it harder and harder and harder for for African students to go to the US. I, you know, in your piece, you point out that 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 is having an impact. However, and to a large extent, China is easier in that sense. But at the same time, China domestically still has a massive race problem. You know, in a, in a lot of ways, like you know, being black in China is is, is even more crazy making maybe than being black in the US um, you know in, in, in very very different ways anyway um, and um, uh, you know so, so, so how, how do you like you know um, for Africans how, how do they balance those two very hostile albeit different environments like what are some of the calculations they make when they when they consider going to either of these two right well um, Kobus you know, I spoke to a lot of people who had actually take from the Confucius Institute in Dakar, who had taken part in scholarships uh, arranged by the Chinese and who'd gone to uh, not Shanghai or Beijing, but, you know, sort of very kind of, you know, sort of off the 
beaten track kind of um, cities in China that many of us have never heard of. And they've said that the people there were fairly welcoming. But I know that you know, um, the kind of intersection of race and identity and how China's responding to Africans is very significant. And actually, that's been one of the um, criticism that, you know, anecdotally, I've heard repeatedly in the countries I've reported from in Africa that the Chinese do not integrate, um, that they keep themselves to themselves. Um, I was talking to a colleague um, in Dakar who was telling me, you know, hilarious anecdotes from Mauritania. Um, and he was saying, you know, the Chinese are heavily invested in that country, but you never see them. Um, and I think what's changed perhaps is that the type of Chinese um, who's come to Africa is starting to change. So perhaps before you may have had rural sort of um, labourers and people who, you know, really were there for an economic purpose. And now what you're getting is um, somewhat um, a different type of Chinese who's more engaged in Africa. I think, if, you know, also, you know, the broader point is that, you know, if Africans go to China, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure many of them might encounter issues around race and identity. But equally, I think what the long-term relationship can do and should do is it should challenge the Chinese. They, they need to do more. They need to engage more. Um, uh, and I think perhaps you see the recognition of that um, in Chinese embassies in African nations. They are much more public-facing these days. And I think that shows that, you know, the kind of relationship that African countries have with China isn't no longer just one of transactional kind of business kind of arrangement. It's increasingly becoming cultural and linguistic. And I think eventually it will not only change Africa, as is doing, but it might change China and it might change the Chinese and the Chinese might be forced because they're having to take this sort of global position increasingly because America under Trump is sort of taking America a first uh, stance on policies that I think maybe the Chinese might eventually get changed by the system. I don't know. I think it's too early to say. I've got, I want to go in three different directions here, but I just want to ask you very quickly. You mentioned about the, the critique of the Chinese not assimilating in places like Senegal. Do white people assimilate to African life in Senegal? I mean, I haven't seen that. I mean, really, do you see white people living in black communities and eating local foods and speaking the local language that isn't French? Well, I think... Uh, I mean, honestly. Um, well... I, that's not on their terms. Well, I think the, the, the point about that is it's, it's, it's not whether they are or, 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 or they're not. The point, I think the broader point is that China um, is a very recent uh, arrivee in Africa, if you like, and the Europeans, whether they're French or British, have been around much longer. And I do... Th who, who haven't assimilated either, by the way. Well, I, I would think... I would sort of agree with you, Eric, on that point. You know, it's the, it's, it's, it's the classic thing, right? You know, it's in, in Britain, we criticise people who come to this country for not integrating, but you go to Spain and it's full of British people who don't integrate. And equally, you go to... <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> this is what people do when they move to other countries. I mean, we talked about this in a previous show that, to be honest, I'm living here in China and that's kind of what I'm yes. doing. So but, my, my but point is that add, that is kind of human add, nature. I, I do accept that. But add, there is... Um, I hate drawing these sort of cultural kind of generalizations, but I, I'm just... What I'm trying to get across is that from speaking to people um, in parts of Africa, what I've sensed is that people have said there's a slight separateness or distance. And that could just be because it's, you know, people don't, you know, the Chinese, obviously, most of them will not speak local languages or even French. Um, it could just be a linguistic issue or, or it could be something a bit deeper. And I'm just saying that people in, in African countries feel, a uh, yeah, I, I can agree. But I'm just saying, I think they give whites a pass and then they, they hold, the, you know, Chinese to a different standard. 
I think you're right. I think that is also the part of it for sure. And I and I have to just quickly say, you know, I was in Gambia and I was uh, staying in the touristy bit because that's the only place I could get a hotel when I was reporting. And, you know, I had to wait for 35 minutes to get served and, you know, come a white couple and boom, you know, the guys were running to them because... White privilege. But- <laughs> white privilege. Um, let me ask both of you. Okay, there's something... Both of you have talked about the the discontent that seems to be rising in Africa about Trump and towards the United States. Both of you have talked about how the comments have led Africans to be outraged and cynical. And, and Ishmael, in your article, you quoted the Pew study, and there was a Pew survey that, that after Donald Trump became president, they went around the world and they asked everybody, what do you think? And here's the part that I don't get. Kobus, I want you to answer on this as well. So I'll start with you, Ishmael. Let me read you some data from the Pew survey. Here is a question that they asked about confidence in Trump worldwide. How much confidence do you have in U.S. President Donald Trump to do the right thing regarding world affairs? I'll give you the extreme so you can understand where things are coming from. Take, for example, the Philippines. 23% have no confidence, but a whopping 69% of Filipinos think that Donald Trump is going to do the right thing in world affairs. Conversely, Spain has 92% of the people there who answered this survey have no confidence in Donald Trump and only 7% do. So just to give you, that's kind of where the extremes are. Interestingly, Africa, in the countries that they surveyed, Senegal, South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Nigeria, and Ghana, in most countries, more people have a positive, favorable rating, have confidence in Donald Trump than don't. 51 to 40 in Tanzania, in favor. 51 to 41 in Kenya, in favor. Uh, 58 to 29 in Nigeria, in favor. 49 to 25 in Ghana, in favor. How do you reconcile that Africa has the strongest favorability of whether Donald Trump will do the right thing compared to any other continent in the world? Okay. Well, I think, um, Eric, that is to do with the long-standing uh, popularity of America across Africa. Uh, and if you were to take those Pew poll numbers uh, about Trump and compare them to uh, Barack Obama or the last Republican president, George W. Bush, I think you'd be shocked. Those two previous American presidents were hugely popular. I think also, you know, that was some months ago, and I think what's changed, um, not just in Africa, but across um, the world, is that at first, perhaps, you know, everyone was shocked by Trump's ascendancy to the White House. Um, and even himself, President Trump himself uh, is alleged not to have thought he could win himself. So there was that initial shock. And then there was a great period, I believe, and maybe that, that those numbers reflect that in Africa, where people were sort of saying, OK, we're not quite sure about this guy. He said some dangerous things on the stump in the you know, elections in the United States, but maybe we'll hear him. And I think you know, Africans were perhaps willing to kind of be more positive in that sort of outlook. But what's changed in the last um, few months is that we've seen that he's he's governed as he campaigned. And those who thought they might be able to tweak or, or influence or cajole Trump to take more traditional stance when it comes to global issues or even issues within the United States have been proven wrong. And I think you are for sure, uh, anecdotally at least, uh, from my experience and being on the ground the last few weeks in Africa, I I've seen since those comments he's alleged to have made an absolute um, um, feeling of um, discontent rising. And I think that uh, is a bad omen for the US long term in terms of its relationship with the continent. Um, Yes, no, I I would definitely uh, agree with you. Um, I I would probably add that 
and this is this is a difficult way to difficult thing to, to articulate. But um, I think there is a tradition or a certain kind of tradition of leadership in Africa of of just very like larger than life kind of ebullient charismatic leaders um, that that people have a, com- a complicated kind of love-hate relationship with. Um, and the, the South African comedian Trevor Noah, who's obviously like, he heads up the Daily Show in the US, he's made that point, that in in, a, in some kind of ways, Trump is almost reads like a stereotypical African leader, you know, in the sense, in the sense that he is both funny and sinister, you know, kind of that he, that he can be Charming, massively charming, but at the same time is a kind of a loose cannon. You never know which way it's going to go, and that it's it's also similar to you know kind of some tra- political traditions in in Africa uh, and in South South Africa that a, a lot of the kind of intrigue and interest in keeping watching this kind of circus as it goes on lies in working out who is on top within his his structure. So that kind of tea leaf reading of of you know kind of what what are, what's happening with the infighting in the White House, this, there's similar versions of that taking place in South Africa, you know, like and and they were like a, a kind of an interesting. It's interesting to compare, um, you know, now outgoing um, South African President Jacob Zuma with Donald Trump in the sense that that they're both similar kind of. Personalities, um, you know, again, this kind of mix of charisma and 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 incompetence and and you know, kind of a somewhat sinister kind of aspect to them, um, and with this this like massive kind of coterie of colorful characters surrounding them. Um, so in that sense, I think in a way, Donald Trump feels familiar in Africa. I think that's a really yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say I think that's a really nicely put, Copus, and I and I think that's something that's uh, often forgotten, right? That he's a character that actually makes sense to Africans. Um, you know, as a character, he's he's quite enticing, and there is something um, quite enjoyable about wa- watching all of the kind of drama and kind of craziness that surrounds Trump. And I think maybe that is reflected in the poll. And it is then interesting that these the the kind of the asshole comments that he made that was the moment where Africa was actually like shocked back into the relationship of to the reality of like oh yes no okay we're actually in a relationship with the superpower and this is what they think of us you know so so i think that that like gives an interesting kind of like context for the pushback i think that's absolutely right ishmael yeah. let's close our let's close our discussion today bringing this back to china and to the theme of your your column if you were you know invited to beijing to go and sit at the at the foot of President Xi Jinping, or at least Wang Yi in the foreign ministry, and they say, Ishmael, you've traveled a lot in Africa, you see what's happening, you see what the President of the United States is doing, public opinion, anecdotally, maybe shifting against the United States, what should we do? What would you tell the Chinese President and the Chinese Foreign Minister about how they can take advantage of this situation at this moment in history? Well, I don't, I don't think the Chinese need any advice from me. I think they're already doing everything uh, on the ground that benefits their long-term strategic goals in Africa. But I think um, sit back, get some popcorns and watch the Trump show because it's fascinating. I mean, I, I've been mesmerized as anybody else. And I think in a way, um, what, what Trump is doing more profoundly than anything else to me is he's effectively, um, if you like... Um, pulling if the wool over people's eyes in a sense or um think of a better way to say this he's effectively you know sort of um uh 
taken the shine out of you know America, the great power on the shining hill. Um, and what he's done is he's um, you know obviously taken positions um, that he campaigned on, and you could argue, well, that's what he said, so that's what he's going to do. But that means that there's real global you know, strategic implication. And with his comments um, that he's alleged to have made, all of this, I think, provide China an amazing opportunity that you can't wish for. I mean, who would have thought, you know, two years ago that you would have someone like Donald Trump voluntarily retreating um, a space traditionally in Africa where the US has had very strong, good relationships and, you know, sort of leaving it to China. And I think if I was the Chinese, I would continue to do what I'm doing. But also, I think finally, I would continue to ramp up the cultural and um, linguistic uh, and other kind of soft power um, relations that they have with African nations. Because I think ultimately that's where m- minds are changed. Don't understell yourself. You could, uh, you know, with that kind of advice, you might actually get invited to Beijing one day. Uh, The article or the column is Trump's insults will nudge African nations closer to to China. You can find it at National Public Radio's website. That's the U.S. Public Radio Network at npr.org. Just look for Ishmael Enashe. Ishmael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We really appreciated your insights and wanted to know if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and doing these days, are you on social media anywhere that they can follow you? Absolutely. Uh, and just like Trump, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure to have me um, on your podcast. Really delighted to speak to you. If people want to follow, please do uh, tweet at me, uh, Ishmael Inashe. I am on Facebook. And um, yeah, we'll keep the conversation going. We'll put a link to Ishmael's uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter handle on our, uh, on our show notes, so you can find it there as well. But it's a great article. Ishmael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Eric. It's really hard to tell, Kobus, where we are right now at this moment. There is so much in flux, and I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to take what you and Ishmael say at face value, because anecdotes can oftentimes be misleading. The data, the last data that we have, which is the Pew report, uh, that survey, contradicts what you're saying, but a lot has happened since that Pew survey was done in the spring of 2017 and today. So attitudes may have, in fact, shifted, but we don't have any hard data to support that. And I just wonder if it's because a lot of us are just offended by Trump, by what he does and how he's doing things, because it's different and it really is a shock to the system. But at the end of the day, some of what he's doing is actually paying dividends. There are There's a good case to be made that his handling of North Korea has been effective, at least in some regards. The stock market is up. Uh, I'm not necessarily defending him, but I am saying that to to lay a blanket condemnation on him also may not be really credible. And in Africa, in particular, getting reliable data, particularly from a continent as diverse as as Africa is, is very, very difficult. So how much of this reading of anti-Trump in Africa is people's opinions? I was going to say fake news. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But how much of it really is opinion and how much of it is actually fact? Um, you know, I think Trump is the, is the kind of this, this splendid kind of nexus where opinion, in fact, merges and you can't tell them apart anymore. Um, but... Uh, you know what? What I've been, what I was arguing in 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 this op-ed that that we mentioned at the beginning, is that it is important to look past Trump um, to the wider relationship between the U.S. and Africa because 
you know, there, there is this kind of illusion in American politics that the that the U.S. president is more powerful than he always he you know is uh, it seems, um, and Trump is constrained on many on many levels, you know, on, on many sides. Um, he's not an omnipotent god, you know. He, he he's he's the the leader of a very powerful mechanism and 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 superpower, but he's not he's not an omnipotent being. What I think is more important is that Trump. Sure, Trump is a, is an is an aberration in lots of ways, but in other ways, some of what Trump is doing is a continuation from the Obama era. Um, under Obama, we also saw a relatively low level of engagement with Africa. I mean, there was some some engagement, um, and a lot of those in, those kind of Obama era projects are now languishing, you know, somewhere deep in in DC, um, and they'll probably be killed, you know, depending on which which form of the of the budget passes, um, but. You know, Obama also had uh, uh, an increase in anti-terrorism measures in Africa, and a, a you know a, a relative disinterest in in pu- public diplomacy in Africa. Um, and so, in that sense, Trump, ha- you know, kind of sharply hiked, you know, the the or like you know stepped on the on the gas pedal on uh, in a direction that the Obama administration was already kind of going in, and and exacerbated some of some of those trends. T- Alarmingly, um, you know, so so the the breakdown of of the the cut in budgets to the State Department and and the loss of Africa experts from the State Department and the the fact that that a lot of key African countries still don't have ambassadors, that is alarming, you know, kind of because it it essentially cuts off one arm from the of the U.S. engagement with Africa while military engagement is being boosted. So you have a situation where military engagement is boosted, but it is also um, top secret, um, so no one really knows where American troops are and what they're doing because you know even people in Congress don't know. And at the same time, there's no diplomatic oversight, there's no outreach, there's no messaging of of the U.S.'s position in Africa to African people. Um, so that that is you know that that is a kind of a bigger trend that has more to do with 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 budgets and bipartisanship and like infighting within Washington than it does personally with Trump, I think. And I think you've brought up a lot of good points here. And this is why 2018, in so many ways, is going to be a pivotal year in Africa's relations with the outside world. Because I've held back on my opinions for most of the show, but I'll conclude with with my take on this. I, I do think that Trump's policies and his attitudes and his insults will have real world consequences for American interests in Africa. And at the end of the day, Uh, African countries will make decisions about their foreign policy based on their own self-interest and national interest. And given the fact that the vast majority of African countries' largest trading partner is now China, that will drive so much. And the Chinese, I think, are going to start playing a much more aggressive soft power game. They are now committing more to aid and development. They are upping their ante with uh, United Nations multilateral operations and humanitarian development, also military post-conflict stability. So you're going to see a larger, more diverse Chinese presence. The upcoming FOCAC summit, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, which happens this year, uh, will be pivotal as well because that's where China will lay down, again, its commitment in the form of cash. And not just cash, but also this promise that says we are going to be a stable partner. And uh, we still don't know if the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which is the free trade between Africa and the United States, may in fact come on to Trump's radar. These are the kind of trade deals that his base does not like. Uh, and so in the fact that 
this comes from countries that he clearly does not respect, uh, is something that we should all take into account. And Africans should not take for granted that they will have continued free trade access into the American market. Yeah, like just just on that point, um, of, you know, just a, a little bit of background. So, like the African Growth and Opportunity Act officially is okay until twenty twenty five. So until until the end of the after the end of the Trump administration. But as you say, he can withdraw from it at any moment. Like it, you know, it, 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 it's not it's not kind of set in stone. If he decides to paint a target on on the act's back, then he can he can blast it if he wants to. Um, imagine the, if he. But just just one thing. Imagine if he said. Right now, today, AGOA will not be renewed. All American investment into Africa for manufacturing that takes advantage of AGOA would stop right now. Because why would you build factories in Africa to take advantage of the fact that you can export into the United States when in five years you can't do that anymore? Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, though, is he doesn't even have to cancel it. He just has to say, "We're not going to do it anymore." Yeah, you can, you can, you can just weaken it, you know, kind of via Twitter. Um, the but the, the the other point, the the intriguing point of Agoa is uh, a lot of African countries are not taking advantage of Agoa at all. So the four top um, top countries in Agoa trade, the only there's there's I think let me remember it's. Nigeria, Chad, Angola, and South Africa. So obviously Nigeria, Chad, Angola, they are all, all of those exports are oil. You know, that's, that's essentially, that makes up almost 100% of their, of their AGOA trade. The only country in Africa who has, who has real trade via AGOA, um, and really makes, you know, takes advantage of it is South Africa. Um, and then a few, a few, there's a few exceptions of kind of a smaller, small levels, but, but AGOA generally, in terms of getting African countries to trade with the US, AGOA hasn't really worked. And I don't think it's necessarily the fault of the US. I think there are uh, structural f- kind of barriers within Africa that is making it impossible for African countries to actually take advantage of AGOA. And so it leads to a whole bunch of other questions of like, what does actual development partnership then mean, you know, in, in, in the context of, of China-Africa? So we had a discussion today that was decidedly anti-Trump in its outlook in terms of how Trump's words, policies, positions, and the actions of the State Department uh, are reportedly nudging Africans closer to China. We have looked uh, for guests who are pro-Trump in this worldview, uh, who have an understanding of Africa and particularly China, and I haven't found any. I've been looking, I've been scouring for bloggers and columnists and things like that who can defend Trump's positions and his words towards Africa, and there, there don't seem to be any. So I would like to put the call out to our listeners that in your readings, in your kind of Twitter followings that you that you look through, if you know anybody who's intelligent, I don't want to troll uh, but we'd like to talk to somebody who has a different worldview on this and can maybe explain the Trump worldview, particularly as it relates to Africa and China. Uh, so I think that would be very interesting because it, it, these are hard people to find. You can find people who can talk about Trump in very broad ways, but not specifically on policy, particularly related to Africa. So I'll put that call out. Uh, you'll have my email address in the show notes. Email me directly, eric at chinaafricaproject.com, if you have any guest recommendations, because we would like to hear the other side of the story as well. So, whew. Cobus, that was a uh, that was a little bit of a zigzagging show there in that sense. We we were a little bit over in the U.S., a little bit over in China, but I think that reflects the times that we live in right now, which these are 
Very confusing times to understand policy and understand geopolitics. The lines are not clear anymore, and they used to be. And that's what makes this actually so very, very interesting. So Kobus and I will be back again next week trying to figure all of this out. And hopefully you can join us again for another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Shanghai. Thank you so much for joining us. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.